guest today is a real tornado. She came blasting in, telling me stories, cracking me up, and it never stopped. I could have talked to her for another three weeks. She has been all over the world and experienced many of the best and worst aspects of life. Here is my friend, Jamie Mathis. It reminds me of being a kid, you know, and sticking your hands over your ears and then just being able to hear yourself like you're on a stereo. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, there's a weird thing that happens when you you hear your own voice, because the only way you ever hear it is when it's just bouncing around inside your head. You don't ever hear, like, actually what it is. I hear it all the time because I love to sing karaoke, so I... (laughs) feel quite comfortable hearing my own voice. Karaoke? Yeah. Have you never? Karaoke? Karaoke. Because it's karaoke that you sing in your car. Okay. Yeah. I've not heard of that. <laughs> I mean, maybe I invented that. I tend to do that sometimes. But... Oh, I mean, I do that. I didn't know there was a word for it. <laughs> maybe there's not. Well, there is now. And I, Jamie Mathis, claim the copyright okay. on karaoke. Well, so let the record be showing. You're going to make a lot of money. I hope so. And that's the goal. <laughs> some point. If I'm doing what I love, then it's fine. And I love karaoke. So. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, is it James Corden? Doesn't he do? Oh yeah. With like all the you celebrities. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like rolling in the SUV and Adele's like, yeah. 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 But the funny thing about that is like, he's not really driving the car. Do they just sit there with a green screen in the back? They put him on a trailer. No. And they drive him because he can't really drive no, while I mean, he's of trying course. to talk to him and that stuff. That would be too much talent. Yeah, that's that's so weird when you see somebody in a car that they're doing that. Because um, can't remember what movie it was, but something came out and somebody saw them pulling the car. It was Borat. It was the second Borat, <laughs> and they saw him <laughs> and took a picture of him. They're like, "Ah, oh, they're filming the second one because yeah. he was on a trailer getting pulled around." Yes, it's gotta yes. be so weird to try to pretend that you're driving. I mean, I guess if it's your line of work and Borat, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen just has such a fantastic imagination. Suspension of disbelief is obviously not something he struggles with, right? He's the best. Yeah. Yeah, he's the best. He just can't, he can't, unless he puts on like a ton of makeup and like a fat suit, he can't do it anymore. No. Everybody knows who he is. Totally, totally. Well, I remember I was going to university in England not more than 20 miles away from Staines, you know, back when he was Ali G, the mm-hmm. rapper from Staines. Mm-hmm. And we'd see him out and about sometimes because I was right by Windsor and, you know, lots of people go there. And that was before he really exploded. And I just remember being so amused by him at that time because that persona is just so different than the Borat persona that talk about living like 17 different lives in the span of 20 years. He's very good at transforming. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he's like, um, God, who is it? I was just talking about it the other day. There's are There are some actors and actresses that are so good, you don't, you can't imagine them as like a regular person. Yeah. Like uh, Lori, Laura Linney is, is one. Do you know who oh, she is? Yes, I do. I feel like she was really big in the mid to late 90s, wasn't she? Well, I mean, she's on Ozark now. Oh, See, Have you seen, you I seen haven't. It? No, okay. it's really good. It's got Jason Bateman in it, mm-hmm. and they are—they're basically money launderers <laughs> for the uh, cartel. Okay. And she is such an incredible actress. I don't know that I could ever hang out with her because I don't know that I would ever trust her as a person. <laughs> she's so good. <laughs> well, do you think it's because she just has a really? 
uncanny ability to observe a situation and relational dynamics and just meld into that seamlessly? Or do you think she's just a huge con artist? I mean, is that... I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what that is. That's such a weird job. Yeah. To pretend to be something. (sighs) Well, I was just listening to this free three-series seminar on becoming a Jungian life coach because I feel like I sometimes have lived about 7 million lifetimes in these 43 years that I've been on this planet. And they were talking about the three components of Jungian thought. And one of them was the development of the persona, which is basically our ego, right? Like, I'm smart, and I'm kind, and I have degrees, so I am somebody you can trust. And it's that story we build about ourselves, right, that the world sees us as. But really, when we hit our mid-30s to early 40s, we start asking that question, who am I, right? underneath all of that stuff because now my hair's falling out and I'm starting to get fat and like my kids are all growing up so I can't identify as being their parent so much anymore. So like, who am I at the base of that? And that's when you start encountering what we might call the soul within this school of thought. And so their work is really to work with the shadow that we all have, like those unconscious parts of our life that trip us up constantly. Like, why do I keep attracting the same kind of partner over and over and over again, who's just like psychotic and always trying to manipulate me? Or why do I find myself in this kind of job over and over and over again, where my boss is a total dirt? Dirk, that might be <laughs> that works. <laughs> might be another new word. Um, but you know, the shadow is essentially that uh, driver behind the scenes that we can't see, right? So it pushes us, and and we're like, I see the effect, but who are you, and why are you doing this to me? And so sort of marrying that idea of who we project to the world with what's hiding behind the curtains and who we truly are sort of gives us this place or space that we can aspire to or like work into where we're actually being an integrated, authentic self, whole self. That's what's weird, though, is that if you are consciously aware of who you are Mm. and always trying to improve, aren't you always becoming a different person? Well, maybe you're becoming a different person, but maybe you're just remembering how vast your true self really is. So when there are people like Laura Linney or people that have had just these wild life stories, I sometimes wonder, are they actually tapped into something like the big secret that we're all sort of piling around trying to uncover? And that is that I am a part of life. I am integrated with all of these different things. So I really don't have to stretch that far to be able to empathize or have compassion with or understand like where a female money launderer living in the Ozarks might be coming from or hanging out with some dude I just met in a recording studio. <laughs> life is crazy. It's crazy. Anything can happen yep. if you are willing to experience it. Agreed. That's part of the problem is that the older you get, the more fear you have. Mm. And the the more set you are in your ways. Maybe. Maybe. It doesn't have to be that way. I think it is that way for a lot of people. I agree. I also feel like there are these choice points that we have throughout our life where we get to decide, I'm either going to go towards the more flexy, bendy, 89-year-old yoga grandma, or I'm going to go down the path towards fundamentalism, getting more stuck in my ways, being more fearful, being more anxious. And 
most of us, I feel like, make that choice subconsciously. We don't necessarily wake up one day and be like, oh, if I keep doing this thing, then I'm going to end up being bendy yoga grandma or vice versa. But I remember having that moment when I was in my like early 20s and just realizing, holy shit, if I keep doing the way that I'm doing now, this is going to be my end goal. I am going to end up being like very calcified and very in the track of whatever it was that I was doing at the time and thinking, I got to make a choice right now and I'm going to choose to stay flexible and I'm going to choose to stay curious. How did you figure that out in your 20s? Well, I had a nervous breakdown after I graduated from university in England in Bangkok, Thailand, of all places. And yeah, because I was going to go there and teach English as a foreign language because I was over America. I was like, the world is here. I need to be out in it. It was right after September 11 had happened. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I had this nervous breakdown in Thailand because I grew up in a religious cult that I had been. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> I Keep mean, going. <laughs> I got like a million questions already. Keep Sweet. Going. I'll try to be brief. Um, all of that to say, I was in Bangkok, Thailand, having this nervous breakdown, um, flew all the way back home to Portland, Oregon. Because I was sure I was dying. And when I got back home to Portland, Oregon, I just was a puddle mess in my childhood bedroom for about two weeks and realized, well, I'm not dead yet. So I am going to have to make some choices. And that was when that realization started happening where it was like, okay, you can either continue to feed this anxiety and this existential crisis that you're having, or you can choose to engage with life and be curious about the scariest, one of the scariest things that has ever happened to you up to this point. Um, And I chose that one. I chose that path. So... Yeah. Okay, so go back a little bit. Why why did you go to England to study? What were you attempting to become? Yeah, well, I was attempting to not lose a bet with my mother, and I did. And so... <laughs> it it's goes, a weird way to go to college. It, it is a weird way to go to college. Um, it kind of is all related to growing up in the religious, religious cult, because I have been raised Seventh-day Adventist, and not just like mainstream Seventh-day Adventist, but like... Not quite uh, Koresh, you know, Seventh-day Adventist, but kind of close, right? Like we didn't hang out with anybody that wasn't Adventist. We didn't drink. We didn't smoke. We didn't dance. We didn't um, play basketball on Saturday. I mean, it was like super buttoned down, right? Mm -hmm. And definitely no sex before marriage. But that's another question and another story. So anyway, I had gone to Adventist school my whole life. And I went to my first year of university at an Adventist school in Walla Walla, Washington, mm-hmm. and was like, oh, no, I got to get the H out of here. Mm-hmm. And so I came back to Portland State. I got a scholarship. Everything was paid for. I was in the Honors College. I was going to be a doctor, pre-med, because P.S., I had childhood cancer that nearly killed me at the age of eight, you know, while going through this culty experience. Um, so I was like, I'll be a doctor, obviously. Like, that's... What does pre-med mean? uh, Pre-medicine. So that's what I was going to major in. I was going to take all the science classes, and then I was going to take the MCAT entrance exam for medical school, and I was going to go be a doctor. Okay. Yeah. Just like general practitioner. Uh, 
well, I mean, I wasn't real sure at that point in time if I'd end up working with kids with cancer like I had been or if I would go the psychology route because that was pretty interesting too. But I was um, interning actually with my oncologist up at OHSU at the time when I was going to Portland State. And uh, I was living at home. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't in Saturday Jesus land. And it was blowing my mind. I mean, I loved it because... People are different outside the church. I mean, they're just cool. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure there's cool people in the church, but like, I hate rules. Me too. I mean, I like rules because then you can break them. Yes. Yeah. And that's like, there's power in saying, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And when your job is to follow the rules, that's so boring. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, especially when you have all these things happen to you that tell you that the rules you're supposed to be following don't actually work. Yeah. Right? So there I was at Portland State, and I I fell in love with this pagan boy who just didn't feel the need for Jesus at all. And I was like, yeah, this is so fun. He's great. He's so smart, and he's cute, and he thinks I'm awesome. And uh, my mom, unfortunately— for her, fortunately, she thought he was awesome too, which blew her ever-loving mind because she was like, my goal in life is to get you married to a good Adventist boy. Mm-hmm. That's why you go to college, right? To get your MRS degree. Mm-hmm. That. And so she was like, honey, you gotta, you, I just really want you to go back to Adventist school. Like, please go back to Saturday Jesus. I'm like, no, (laughs) why would I do that? My school is paid for. You can't use the money card on me anymore. Like I did it on my own steam. I'm here. And, uh, And she kept nagging me. And finally I was like, okay, I will go to Saturday Jesus School only if it is as far away from you as it could possibly be. And that's England. So if you want me to go, you have to get me applied. You have to pay for all of it. I will pack my bag and get on a plane and fly there and stay there for a year. But you have to do everything else. She was willing to pay money to send you to a different country when you were getting school for free next Mm. to her. Yes, where she could keep an eye on me, but could not control me from being in love with that little atheist. Her conviction runs deep. So she paid for it and you went. I went. And then you just got wild. I got so wild. (laughs) It was the best. So I got there and I was 20 at the time. And uh, I remember two really pivotal moments. So one of them was when I was taking this racial and ethnic relations class. And I was totally up in the air about what I was going to do with my life at that point in time because, you know, they didn't have a pre-med program at the school. It was like English or history or religion. So I was like, well, (laughs) it's not going to be religion. So I'm in this racial and ethnic relations class, and we're talking all about um, racial bias, and we're talking about inherited racism. And I'm walking to class that day, and I see this biracial couple walking hand in hand down the pathway. And the first thought that comes into my mind is, oh, that's never going to work. And I was like, whoa, what the F, Mathis? Like, where did that come from? Because that sounds racist AF in my own mind, and I'm horrified. And then I hear my mom's voice being like, honey, it's not that 
black people are worse than white people or white people are better than black people. It's just they're so different. Like, how would it be for the children? This is in 2000, the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, oh, this, mm -mm, no, no, no. So I'm, I'm constantly experimenting, so curious, to my detriment sometimes. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I need to uncover and see if there is actually generational racism that's been subconsciously passed down from generation to generation in my family because why would my mother's voice be in my head saying this and why would that be my knee-jerk reaction to seeing a perfectly ordinary situation like a biracial couple walking that's how you, that? Because that's how you were raised and yeah. that's what you were taught. You can't, right. you can't really be responsible for that. No, but I felt responsible because yeah. I was like, I'm an asshole. Like, yeah, 100%. Well, good on you for realizing that that was a wrong thought. But, like, it's the same thing as, like, if your mom made you pancakes every morning for every day of your life, you'd think pancakes were awesome. Or, like, that's what you're supposed to eat. And then Maybe. you meet somebody and they're like, yeah, well, I eat Lucky Charms every morning. You're like, you sinner. I know. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's different. The sinner archetype is very strong in my mind, you know, just from that childhood upbringing. And so I I couldn't leave it. I couldn't let the sleeping dog lie. I was dating this guy at the time who had grown up in Africa as a missionary kid. And so my brain was like, oh, I got this. So I call her up and I'm like, hey, I'm doing great. Loving England. Have this awesome boyfriend. So smart. So handsome. Like all the things. Also, he's black. Just, and I'm pregnant. And I'm pregnant. <laughs> Not that part. Oh, the line just goes <laughs> dead. I mean, yeah, right? And I'm like, what's the problem? You know, he's in college. He's got a good family. He's, mm -hmm. I, I tick off all the, and she's like, you know how I feel about this. So that conversation just ended pretty quickly. And I was like, okay, <clears throat> now I know. And I just didn't tell her that he was a white guy that grew up in Africa. I was just like, he's African. I thought you just said you told her that she, he was, he was black. black. Yeah. So I'm recanting that because I'm like, how did my mind work that out? Because it was, so you it didn't... wasn't a lie. It was just an omission of the full. <laughs> so you were trying to paint the picture that he was. That he was. Yes. But he actually wasn't. No, okay. he was, he, he had black hair. Okay. Um, but no, he was not a melanated person. And I just wanted to see what her response would be, like if I had just dreamed this up. And so I just let that one ride. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually correct that melanated or non-melanated part. And mm -hmm. she found out through some random person back in the States who knew me because Saturday Jesus world is like really freaking small. Mm -hmm. And 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 so that was a huge rift where she was like, how could you lie to me? And I was like, how could you be racist and not tell me? And that was before we had all of the literature that we have now about, mm -hmm. you know, how these things work and are mm -hmm. subconsciously passed and... So, I mean, really, you were you were going to school to learn and get a degree, but really, you were going to to spite your mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which mm -hmm. I think is probably pretty common for college age people, and especially girls, and especially people in the church. Yes, right? yes. One would think. Yeah, one would think. Um, the other thing that happened while I was there that first year, I'd never been drunk before. I mean, I was. 21 years old now, right? And I have never let the demon liquor touch my lips. <laughs> and so I turned 21 and I'm like, well, the drinking age here is 18 in England, um, but I'm waiting on the American timeline. And then... <laughs> 
because rules, man, right? Yeah, like the right. rebel is so strong, but I'm just like, oh, really trying to be a good girl. And so 21 comes and I'm like, oh, I wake up and I realize I don't actually believe in God. Like, it just hits me like a bolt of lightning. I'm like, I'm done with this thing. Like, Colt, be damned. I am casting my bread on the water, and I am going to see what happens. Like, if I don't do this Seventh-day Adventist thing anymore. And so I call her up, and I'm like, and it's on Friday, because Saturday Jesus people have their their holy day, like Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, like Jews. Mm -hmm. And so I call her on Friday night, and I'm like, hey, I'm going out, and I'm getting drunk. I don't believe in God, and I think I'm going to have sex. Click. Whoa. Poor mom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. So, so that's how I ended up in England. I lost a bet with her, and then because I lost the bet, I was like, okay, I'm cutting all ties, and we're just going to see what happens. So, so that was year one, That right? was year one. I stayed for three. Okay. So yeah. did you— just get progressively more crazy and yeah. yeah you're just partying and doing i mean okay yes and <laughs> right like uh i am just about the most white bread looking person i've ever seen and i also because of my health history sort of had it programmed in me that like i don't want to do anything that's going to mess up my body too bad yeah so <clears throat> i got drunk maybe you know three or four times while I was there and felt really naughty while I was doing it, but then realized I really hated hangovers mm. and may have given myself blood alcohol poisoning the first time because I was so messed up, so messed up. Um, and so so there was that. But, uh, yeah, all the other pieces, you know, there was like some dabbling with controlled substances and um, definitely walked right off the end of the plank with regards to the the physical intimacy no-nos that I had firmly abided by up to that you know, point. So That's part <clears throat> of being a human. Is it? You can't fight that. <laughs> I didn't want to at that point in time. So, yeah, I mean, the awakening happened mm -hmm. over there. And so I just kept staying to see what else would happen. And did you get to experience culture at all? Like, did you travel around oh, and do anything? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I... Um, I went all over the place. I drove around Ireland in tiny cars with crazy friends, and I backpacked around Italy and Switzerland with, like, seven of my best guy friends. And, I mean, I just, like, had great, great That's times. Cool. It That's was really super, cool. super fun. Yeah. And got a taste for the European lifestyle. And September 11 happened while I was there, you know? What was it like over there? Oh, man. That... I remember two things from my, you know, teenage, like, college years, Princess Diana dying and September 11. Remember exactly where I was. Everyone has their stories, right? So I was in the shower, and I got out of the shower. I'm standing there in my towel, and all of my roommates are clustered around the television, and we just see the planes, like, crashing into the buildings. And Because it would have been, like, 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty... It was like midday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And everybody was just stunned. There were a lot of American students there, you know, exchange programs. And so <clears throat> it was a mix of, of British students and other European countries and Americans and people from the African continent as well. And, and we're all just standing there. And the first thing that I think is we're going to go to war and nobody's even going to ask why or like what the story is behind this. Mm -hmm. And... um 
watching that roll out after that moment and just seeing like all of the sympathy for America, but also up to that point, there had been so much anti-American feeling because Bush was in office, you know, Bush part two, and it was just crazy. And so I didn't come home until actually that Christmas, I was in New York City visiting a friend and they were still hauling loads of rubble away, right? Oh, yeah. It burned for six, eight, ten months, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was crazy, you know, and everybody had their American flags up in their cars. And it was the first time that I had really experienced that nationalism, Mm -hmm. really, like, on that level. And and so that was really, really fascinating because on the one hand, I was very sad as an American, obviously, like first time something like this has happened. And on the other hand, I was doing a lot of behavioral science, you know, and sociology and like the psychology of change and human systems. And so I was just really provoked by how galvanized and how just lockstepped it seemed like Americans had suddenly become who had always up to that point in time prided themselves on their individualism Mm -hmm. and being able to do whatever the F they wanted to do. And suddenly it's just like, wave the flag, do the thing, donate the blood, you know, here we are, but like, now what? So, yeah, I mean, that's the only really positive thing that came out of it is that everybody kind of joined together. I mean, it's nothing like now. Everybody wants to kill everybody. (laughs) Everybody's (laughs) against everybody. But then, I mean, I don't really remember the way that it went down. I was a a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know what happened in the world. I just remember what happened to me that day. Uh, But from what I've read and what I've talked to people about, it was like everybody kind of joined together. Mm. And we kind of forgot that there were differences. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. we're a country of people and these these other guys attacked us and now we're going to stick together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was that. There was also this sense that I had sort of being an American, but being removed, you know, knowing I'm going to go back across the pond, so to speak, and, and continue with this English perspective coloring everything of... Um, we're doing this because we're afraid, not because we suddenly got this great idea of what we wanted to all do together, like, let's build a light rail and save the planet. It's like, no, we need to kill those people yeah. because they tried to hurt us. And so we are going to do whatever it mm-hmm. takes. And that energy of of fear then getting laid over with anger and then getting overlaid with um the polarization that we see now, I was just like, oh, it felt like I was seeing the writing on the wall when mm-hmm. I first saw that of the direction that things were going to go in. And uh, I remember writing songs about it and um, just singing them and crying because I was like, oh, things are coming unraveled. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really are because we're not stopping. We don't have the space to ask why and how did we get here to this moment in time? where this tragedy has happened, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and no one could really perceive how much things would change. I mean, from what you do at the airport to the Patriot Act to like everything that came after that. And the, the crazy part to me is that when, when that happened, Bush's approval rating was like 93%. Like mm-hmm. it was like the highest it had ever been for any president ever. Everybody yep. was behind him and, yeah. and loved him and trusted him and whatever. But then 
as time went on, you know, yeah. and start the war in Iraq and all that kind of stuff, then everybody thinks he's the devil. Yeah. And I never supported him, but like he became the Antichrist. Yeah. And now, mm -hmm. 15, 16, <laughs> 17 years later, he's like a... He's like Bambi. Yeah, he's like the kindly grandpa we all wish we had instead <laughs> yeah. of, you know, 45. Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy how yep. 15 years can change perspective on somebody that was like demonized. And mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't go either way, but I'm just like, he was so hated then. Yeah. And, and people wrote songs about him and protested him against him. And then Trump comes along. Yeah. And it's like completely Give different. me the kitten. Yeah. I'll take the we'll kitten. Take Bush. Okay, so that happens. And then you're still in college yeah. in London. And so where was it in? Was it in the city? Was it in the suburbs? Where were, where were you physically, oh, geographically located? Yeah. yeah. So it was not in the city because Adventists always try to be away from the hotbeds of iniquity. So it was in the suburbs of Binfield, which is by Bracknell, which is <laughs> by Windsor. And so it's like an hour west of London. It's very sylvan and pastoral. The famous poet Alexander Pope used to wander around the meadows there. And okay. yeah, I mean, beautiful, just really pretty. And what about the food? You always hear that it's like really bland and like... There Nothing was hazing. There was hazing that happened, you know, at university from the British students to the American students with Marmite. So bland, though, much of the food like mushy peas may be, there is one zinger that British cuisine has given us, and that is Marmite. What is Marmite? Marmite is like... <laughs> It's like if Satan's bottom had a crust that built up on it. I mean, it is really just this tarry, nasty, fermented yeast that is a spread that you put on toast. Like and Vegemite? Yeah. Okay. But it's like Vegemite plus, huh. plus, 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 like the tar pits of La Brea. I mean, that's kind of the consistency. <laughs> <laughs> that it is. And it smells terrible. It wow. just, and they spread it on their toast and they love it and people love it. And I'm so glad they love it because I think it's like their attempt at sauerkraut or kimchi or like any of these fermented okay. foods that are good for our intestinal tract. But oh man. So it was like you came in the door to the cafeteria and you wandered by their table and they were like, here, American, try this. And you would take the spoon, and if you were able to get it down, then <laughs> they would speak to you. If you didn't throw up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. She's no good. No. She doesn't pass. Pass her along. You know, <laughs> this one has to yeah. go home. <laughs> okay. So did you get an accent? Yeah. D on purpose? Kind of. <laughs> it was too fun. Yeah. It was too fun. Plus, you know, if I had had my druthers and had actually pursued what I wanted to in college, I would have on theater because mm -hmm. that was like my big come to Jesus moment in high school was like, I'm going to Broadway, baby. This is going to be amazing. And I was so clear. And my parents were like, if you go to New York City, you will become a lesbian crack smoking <laughs> whore. We will not support you. You will die in a gutter somewhere. Oh, um, God forbid you become a lesbian. <laughs> I mean, right? Or actress or, or crack smoking yeah, whore. Well, I mean, crack's okay. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> Wow. So yes, the accent did follow, and um, that would be that would be the best part, in my opinion. Yeah. If I moved there, I would just I'd show up. I'd be like working on it on the plane. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, 
making my mouth water, do it. Water, water, water. <laughs> and then you get off and you just like, you put emphasis on the wrong word and they're like, she, she's totally faking it. Poser. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like you choose your words carefully, right? Mm-hmm. And you practice in the bathroom and then mm-hmm. you trot like one out in conversation <laughs> for a couple of weeks and then add another one and then they yeah. don't really notice it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It was fun. So what made you decide to go to Bangkok? Of all places. Well, that was last-minute planning on my part because I stayed three years. I ended up with an English lit degree and a history minor. You went to become a doctor (laughs) and you left with an English degree. I mean, isn't that just how it goes? Great Britain. Mm -hmm. English literature, (laughs) if you must know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I wrote about swing music for my final project and uh, its impact on racial relations in the United States. In America. Yep. From 1935 You're to all 1950. Over the place. I am all over the Thank you. You're starting to see the theme. I mean, who am I really? <laughs> <laughs> Little of everything. Yeah. So. I ended up with an English lit degree, and I got minors in behavioral science and history and religion because you had to take religion classes there, so whatever. Um, And then it was like graduation is upon me. I can't stay for another year. I've already done five, so it's it's time. And so I thought, well, I don't want to go back and get a graduate degree yet because I need to live some real life, so what can I do to support myself? And I was like, well, English degree teaching English as a second language, can see the world. Yeah. And so Bangkok, Thailand was the jumping off place to get to Chiang Mai, where they had their TESOL, teaching English as a second language certification program. Chiang Mai, is that in China? Nope. It's in Thailand. Okay. North. So I was supposed to get to to Bangkok and then go to Chiang Mai, take this six-week course, become a certified English teacher, and then travel my way around the world just teaching English. That was the plan. It's a good route for a lot of those countries because mm-hmm. you know English really well and they right. want to learn it. So right. Yeah. It's... I, I have a lot of friends or a lot of people I know that have gone to China to teach. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have kids and stuff. I can't just do that. But that seems very appealing. Yeah. If you're free and you're 24 years old or whatever, you can just go somewhere. That would be cool. Exactly. That was my total plan. So how long were you there before you had the nervous breakdown? Uh, Like 24 hours. That's it? That's it. That's it. So what prompted the breakdown? Well, I have thought about that a lot in the ensuing years, as you might imagine. And I feel like it was really a combination of just the collective backwash of being raised in a cult, having been so close to death so early and young in life, having my parents come to England for my graduation, and then being stuck in a car with them for like two weeks driving around the UK. (laughs) And having all of that just kind of hit me in the ass when I landed in this foreign country where I didn't speak the language, where I knew nothing about it, except it was known as the land of smiles. I mean, that's really what I knew about Thailand. Mm. Getting there was, you know, they'll be nice to you, I guess. And um, and then there I was in this really crappy hotel where it was just hotter than hot and the humidity, you know, you're just like soaked through. And I just woke up in a complete panic attack because it was like, what am I actually doing here? <laughs> 
my subconscious was like, Jamie, you're all over the place to echo your previous <laughs> Who's statement. Who's in charge of me right now? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. it was like my brain just broke. And that was um, that was the worst thing that could have happened. Because what, So what year was this? This was 2002. 2002. You yeah. were 20, how many? Three. 23 years yeah. old. Yeah. You've been there 24 hours. You wake up in the hotel and you lose it. I, I wake up in the hotel with the thought, you're dying. You're, I am dying. Like just blazing through my head. I don't know if you've had panic attacks before, but um, I hadn't until that moment. So I legit thought I was dying. Like I couldn't breathe. Mm. My body was all seized up. You know, I was like, I have deep thrombosis from this long-haul flight. I mean, hypochondria. Who even knew that was a thing until that moment? Yeah. Um, and I couldn't move. Like, I was physically immobilized. Wow. And it sucked. So how long were you there in the hotel? Did somebody come and help you? Like, how'd you get to the airport? Yeah. I traveled with my best friend. We were going to do this thing together. And when I could finally move, I mean, was it five minutes? Was it an hour? Who knows? Um, I was like, Karen, <laughs> I need help. And she woke up and she was so great. She's like, it's okay. <laughs> She's like, it's the first day. Get it together. Get it together, Mathis. I pick my friends really well. I have to say that is something I have been very fortunate with. So she was just, she was awesome. And she was like, what do you need? And I was like, I need to go back to Portland so I can die in a place where I can read the signage. <laughs> oh my God, poor sweet little 23-year-old me. So <laughs> she she helped me get back to the airport um, and get my ticket changed, but I couldn't leave for another day and a half. So I was like, well, we might as well see Bangkok, I guess, while I'm here. And so we had a day and a half where we nearly got scammed out of $5,000 and bought blue sapphires to take back home and had silk suits made. I mean, it was just like such a <laughs> such a surreal time. I feel like at some point in my life, I'm going to have to go back to Thailand. You haven't been back. That was it. Nope. You got to go back. I know. I know. Because I don't feel like I gave Thailand a fair shake. How, how long did Karen stay there? She stayed the whole time. I mean, huh. and she did it. She got her English certification and she I don't think actually taught anywhere. She just came back home to L.A. and then went to law school. But um, but she did not lose it. She managed to stay <laughs> the course. So, oh, yeah. What a bummer. Yeah. What a bummer. So you, you see Bangkok for a day and a half. You get scammed or almost, almost get scammed. Almost get scammed. And you came back. And so yeah. what happened when you got back here? I remember stepping out of the Portland International Airport and just taking this deep breath and smelling the evergreen trees and just being like, oh, I can't, okay, I can breathe, I can breathe. And um, so my dad came and picked me up from the airport, drove me home, was super grumpy because he was like, we just literally spent like thousands of dollars <laughs> getting you educated, yeah. sending you to Thailand, yeah. and now like you're what? what mm -hmm. you know and I was like oh, my brain is broken like I'm so sad <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know what to do and he just like deposits me at home and my mom's like what do you need honey you know and so there I am in bed and have this moment that I described earlier where I realized I had to make a choice you know I either had to just succumb 
to this anxiety-riddled, untrustworthy mental state that I had found myself in, or I had to get my shit together and figure it out, you know? And uh, I, I had spent a summer in Spain after that first year in England learning Spanish and living with Spanish people in this really amazing place. And it was like the best summer of my life. And the flamenco music was just like, oh, gosh, it's so good, right? I mean, and the dancing. And and I remember reading a book about flamenco. And I I had thought that I'd go back and do a master's degree and I'd write about gypsy culture and flamenco in southern Spain. And so this book that I had read was called Weeping Violins, and it talked about uh, the gypsy genocide, actually, during World War II. And it talked about flamenco music and how it's structured. And one of the pieces that really stood out to me was this thing called Cante Hondo, the deep song. And the pinnacle of that song and that music arc is this state that you get to called duende. And the way that I interpreted that was this moment of transcendence that only can come from deep suffering and from deep pathos. And sure. right. And you know what it looks like when you see somebody in it because it's the face. It's the flamenco face where they're just like, ah. Yeah. So, and I realized like that was the moment that I had the nervous breakdown. Like that nervous breakdown moment was that cante hondo, like really that deep song of my soul, just mm, that suffering just being so great that it had to come out somehow. And I didn't have the music right there, but my body was like the song. My body and my brain were that music. And from that point, there's this calm after that, that duende gets its, that transcendence happens. It's like, okay, I know what the worst thing is now. So from this moment in time, it can really only be uphill Mm -hmm. because I've gone so low and everything that I thought was stable and certain like my mind has broken into pieces around me. So what, what is there in the aftermath after the tsunami has like pulled back from the shore and the tides have started to regain their normal rhythm again? What's left and what do you build? I think that's what everybody's trying to figure out. You're told all these things you're supposed to do through your childhood and through your adolescence and when you go through high school and you're supposed to you're supposed to know what you want to be mm-hmm. when you're 18 years old and then Ugh. you're going to spend $150,000 at college to figure that out and then by the time then you're supposed to get a job mm. and you're supposed to get married and you're supposed to have kids and mm. buy a house. Mm-hmm. And you're like told this story that you're supposed to do and then like in your situation you did all that stuff And then you were done with college and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. And that's totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. But I I feel like um, my life has been a series of initiations, which I didn't know at some of these really big ones, like getting a tremendously rare form of cancer as a child and being told I'd die. Yeah. You've you've brought that up a bunch of times. Let's just go right into that. What happened? So... (laughs) I was eight years old, and I had been listening or overhearing a conversation with my parents, and they were talking about this church member who had gotten cancer. And I remember thinking as a kid, 
I hope that never happens to me. That would be the scariest thing ever. I would die. I was one of those kids that at the very mention of the word doctor, I would just go into hysterics from the time I was vocal, which, yeah. yeah. And so a couple weeks after I overheard that conversation, my mom was brushing my hair, had really long red hair and a green gables. I mean, I was born just a bright redhead, right? And my hair was one of my favorite things. I would lay in the bathtub and I'd swish my head back and forth and be a mermaid. And I loved it. It was so great. And um, so she's brushing my hair and she's like, what's that? What's that? And she's feeling the back of my head and I'm feeling it too. And there's a lump there. And I don't know. I'm eight years old. So she starts trotting me around to doctors and they're like, oh, kids get bumps all the time. You know, it's fine. But it kept getting bigger. And then it started spreading. Like I had one on the back of my head. Then I had one on the side of my neck. And they kept getting bigger and bigger. And my mom's like, it's not going away. And so she's trotting me around to more doctors. And finally, one says, well, we should get it biopsied. If it were my kid, I'd probably do it just to check. And she's like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, let's do it. I'm getting more and more tired in the meantime, more and more lethargic, all of this stuff. And so, so I go in for this surgery, which... I hate needles. I hate doctors. I'm like, what the F? No, I'm eight. I'm tiny, you know? And so they do the biopsy and it comes back as cat scratch fever. That's a Ted Nugent song. What is it? <laughs> really? Yeah. How does it go? I don't know it. You don't know that song? No, no. I'm yeah, like cultural black hole, know, my friend. You've heard that song before. I don't think so. Yeah. I didn't listen to rock and roll until I was like 19 years old. So... So what does it mean in the medical community? Uh, Well, it means that your glands get really swollen because you got scratched by a cat and then you get better. So they're like, you're going to get better. It's fine. Meanwhile, I'm like, I can't walk on my right leg. And you got a thing hanging off your chin. I've got a goiter. I mean, it's like something is wrong. It's not getting better. And so they're like, "Uh, let's do another biopsy and let's send it down to Stanford. So they do. And we, meanwhile, travel down to the Napa Valley where my grandparents live for Christmas. So it's Christmas. Christmas is my favorite holiday. I love Christmas. All the cousins to get together, you know, and I'm like not hungry. I can't walk on my right leg. My face is enormous. I just want to sleep all the time. And so everybody's partying. I'm sleeping. And then we go to church on Saturday. And when we come back, my mom and dad are like sitting in the living room and I know something's up, right? They're just, they've got the serious game faces on and I'm in my little Sabbath dress that's brand new from Gunny Sex in San Francisco. I mean, like it's crystal clear detail that I remember this in. And my mom's like, honey, um, we have the results back and it's cancer. And, you know, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. And, and the, you don't know what that means when you're eight years old, do you? I just know I'm going to die because yeah. I've overheard this conversation. Like, that guy died. I'm going to die. Like, this is my literal worst nightmare coming to life, like, yeah. right in front of me. And so I'm like, what do I do? What do we do? I'm just so upset. And they load me up into the car, and they're like, we're going to go down to Stanford Children's Hospital, and they're going to run some tests. And I'm thinking, okay, I can get on a treadmill. Is it going to be like bicycles? Like, Because what do I know? So we get down there, and the first thing that they want to do is start an IV on me. And 
suddenly I'm not just like a 60-pound eight-year-old. I'm like a screaming tiger that it takes now five people to hold down so they can start this IV on me because mm-hmm. I've never had one before. And so, um, yeah, that was that was how it started. And then it was spinal taps and it was doctors on grand rounds, like standing around my bed because it's a teaching hospital, right? So all of these medical students and all of these doctors, and they're talking about me and my case. And apparently the type of cancer that I had was so rare that there were only three or four recorded cases in medical history. What? 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 Was it still cat scratch fever? Nope. It was something else. It was like malignant histiocytosis, motherfucker. That's what it's called? That's what it's called. Yeah, with the motherfucker? Yeah. (laughs) They didn't say that, but that's what they meant. Lots uh, of exclamation marks. So many. It was uh, a non-Hodgkin's form of lymphoma. That was like the easy way to say it. And it's hereditary? Okay. Skip forward 30 years. And my grand... Well... Not 30. He passed away when I was 27-ish. So, you know, skip forward 20 years. Grandpa passes away from this thing, another super rare thing called mycosis fungoides. Not Hmm. a fun-sounding thing. So I'm researching this because I love my grandpa and, you know, I'm curious. And I find that mycosis fungoides and malignant histiocytosis are, like, in the same family. And that they generally occur in Burmese mountain dogs. You got Burmese mountain dog cancer? Right. And so did my grandpa. So I'm like, what? <laughs> what? But I didn't know that when I was eight years old. I didn't know that grandpa was going to die of something in the same disease family that I apparently had. So was it hereditary? Maybe. Probably. Are we related to Burmese mountain dogs? The jury's still out on that one. So all of that to say, um, there were lots of tests and the doctors are standing around talking about all of it. And I'm terrified, like I'm still terrified, right? Because all of the needles and like they didn't knock me out completely for the spinal tap. So I'm like, I can remember them like missing a bunch, like trying to get the needle in between my vertebrae and just crying and being like, where's my mom? And now they're all like, she's going to die. She's got like a 20% chance of survival or whatever. And something inside me just stood up. And it was like, I am not fucking going to die. And you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do. So you want to talk about breaking rules. Like that was the moment when little Jamie made the choice. I'm going to be a rule breaker. And the next day, all of the lumps were like half the size that they had been the day before. You vividly remember as an eight-year-old saying that that was not going to affect you. And the next day you were cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like to the power of the mind, right? Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And everybody, of course, was like, it's a miracle. Jesus saved you for a reason. He's got big plans for you. (laughs) Um, So if we had to trace like, who am I (laughs) and what am I doing with my life? Probably a lot of it stems back to that. Because I felt like I had some sort of contract with God going, right? Like, he saved my life for a reason, like a big reason, because this is a really rare form of cancer and you should be dead, but you're not. You're like magically recovered, even though you go through lots of chemo and congestive heart failure and all this other stuff. But 
you know. Has it become more common now? No. No? It's still pretty rare. Yeah. 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 But as far as you know, there's no like relapse or it's gone? I mean, it relapsed. I went through chemo for a year, got congestive heart failure from the chemo. When you were eight years old? Well, I was nine then. But yeah. Chemo. Yeah. What is chemo like when you're nine years old? Shitty. I mean. You lose all your hair? All of it. All of my beautiful red hair. Like my crowning glory, the thing I loved more than almost anything, except maybe horses, gone. And um, yeah, that was a whole experience too. I remember it falling out on my shoulders, going to Safeway in Gladstone and coming home and being like, it's happening. And my mom just like started crying and ran out of the room. And I was like, well, fuck, (laughs) guess I'm alone in this. So I walked over to the mirror and just started like combing my fingers through Mm. it and just pulling out these hunks of hair and then being like, oh, I could give myself like a 40-year-old man haircut. And then just like pulling out all the hair along the top and then having that tonsure and then being like, I wonder if I did it just on this side. And then, and I'd show her, I'd go in after every incarnation and be like, check this out. And she'd just like cry harder. (laughs) Look at my comb over. Look at my comb over. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So. And at this point, were you going to like a public school or are you going to a, a Saturday event? Jesus? Saturday Jesus. Whole and so time. were they mean? Well, I actually stopped going the second half of third grade because I was getting chemo. So you asked what chemo is like when you're eight. So I go in, they give me an IV, um, give me a spinal tap in between my vertebrae, like long needle. <laughs> There you go. Tell you a joke while we do it. Um, and then I would violently vomit for about 20 hours. And then they would send me home. What do you vomit when there's nothing in your stomach? Well, I figured out that as long as I had like anything that I could cram in my face next to me, then I would like shove stuff in my mouth really fast, drink something really fast right before I felt like I was going to throw up, and then I'd throw it up. And then I'd rinse and repeat because dry heaves are the worst. So you have an eight-year-old? That's so horrible. I mean, I'm so sorry. Me too. That's terrible. I have a seven-year-old boy. I can't imagine. Yeah. That's terrible. My son is eight right now. And when I had him, I remember just holding him and being like, oh, fuck. <laughs> How am I going to? do this until he's eight years old. Like, what happens if he has to go through this too? That's the worst because you can't love anything more than you love your kids. And when, if they have some rare form of cancer, you can't control that. You can't do anything about that. You just got to like watch it happen. Mm -hmm. I'm sure your mom, I'm sure she was just like tore up. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I... I have a lot of compassion for her, especially since I have become a parent myself. She was with me the entire time. I mean, she was with me in the hospital and held my my lack of hair back. You know, she held my head um, when I was throwing up and made sure that I got up and went to the bathroom every hour so I didn't damage my kidneys from all the chemo. And I mean, she was like a rock star in terms of... Yeah. So what else happens when you're you're going through chemo when you're nine years old? Do they have like a specific diet for you? What it, 
Back, back in the 1980s, they <laughs> sure didn't. In ancient times. Yeah, that's what my son, he came home from school the other day. He was like, you know, Mom, back in the 1980s, things were different than they are now. When Prince was still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like six then. He's like, what? Don't die. Don't get old. I was like, it's too late, kid. <laughs> like The 1980s were my reality. So um, no, no special diet. Yeah, they were like, eat whatever the F you want. Hmm. You know, you're probably going to die. So just go for it. Hmm. But my parents were, they did not believe them. So they actually made us vegan before vegan was cool. And so I would drink, my dad would get up and he would make carrot juice for me every single day. Hmm. And that is like one of the soundtracks that plays in my head when I think about that time is the of the juicer Hmm. and him just grinding the carrots and feeding me the carrot juice every day. And uh, so, yeah, we were vegetarian, vegan, didn't do dairy products. We didn't do refined sugar. We had fresh juice for me every day. Um, So it was really a big change. As an uber religious family, Mm. Mm. becoming vegan. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it meshes. Well, actually, it meshes super well with Adventists because huh. they were the ones that got on the vegetarian train before that was like even a thing in the 1970s. So, okay. yeah, a lot of Adventists are vegetarian. And so this was just like vegetarian plus. So it wasn't horrible because I hadn't even eaten meat up until that time. I didn't even eat meat until I was probably... Whew, 13, never passed my lips. Why did you start when you were 13? Because I was a rule breaker, my friend. <laughs> you just like slamming I, cheeseburgers after school oh, or what? Sneak into the mall, <laughs> going to Arby's. Remember Arby's? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And getting the biggest meat sandwich I could find. I was like, just give me the biggest one and just sitting there. I mean, just like, throw away oh, the bread. Yeah. Just, yeah. Give, just give me the beef. <laughs> Yes, it was wow. it was quite the experience, yeah. That's what rules do to people. Uh-huh. You tell people they can't do something or they can't have something, hmm. that makes them want it more. So true. Yeah. So true. Yeah, I mean, but there is that sort of paradox, right, between no place like home. We got to have those boundaries. We got to have the familiar. We got to have rules of some kind, right, to feel safe so we're not chronically triggered into fight or flight Mm -hmm. but then there's also the manifest destiny side where it's like do all the things how big can i go how much shit can i acquire Mm -hmm. what can i conquer Mm -hmm. you know so yes to your point and dot 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 (laughs) and also you go to arby's all the time now no i don't i don't do that (laughs) To remind you of your childhood. (laughs) I I have grass-fed beef, you know, in my um, freezer now. Nice. Yeah. So So we we made it to uh, Thailand and then 24 hours Mm. and Karen helped you get to the airport and you came back to Portland. And then what happened when you got back here and then you're like, I need the next thing. Yeah. What did you do? I made a bucket list. I was like, well, I'm not dying. Got drugged to all the doctors, right? Had all the tests done just to make sure I'm like, fine. They're like, you can have some anti-anxiety medication if you want. And I was like, fuck, no, you're not medicating me. I'm feeling everything. Still here. So I decided to make a bucket list because 
I figured I'd probably be dead by the time I was 30 because I obviously had reneged on whatever this bargain was with God, you know, from back in cancer times when he saved me for this big reason and big purpose. Well, because you forsake him. Yeah, because I forsaked him because I was like, I'm going to go get laid and drink a lot of stuff and I don't believe you exist anymore. (laughs) Thanks for saving me from cancer, but I'm out. But peace out. Yeah, but somehow still, like, even though I don't believe in you anymore, you still exist and are going to take back the life that you gave me. Um, So you've got till 30, bitch. God called you bitch? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he does well he's not very nice sometimes. <laughs> Patriarchy, man. And so I made this bucket list and I was like, okay, what is everything I've ever wanted to do in my life? I got till 30 to get it done. Go. And so that's how I spent my 20s was checking off my bucket list. Oh, wow. Nobody makes a bucket list at 23. That's uh, crazy. Yes, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. What was on the list? What'd you do? Well, I wanted to sing professionally. That was one thing that I wanted to do. So I did that. And You met Kelly Clarkson or what? No, um, because remember, I'm still stuck in major fight or flight, right? So I can't venture too far afield from safety and home and like living with my parents because I'm living there now, right? Uh, So I get hired as a singer on the Portland Spirit here in Portland. I've been on there. It's a perfect day for a cruise on the river, you know? And, And so we had to... I had to sing, and so I sang. And I did that on the Portland Spirit. And then I started doing paid gigs around town with some of the theater companies. So Broadway kind of stuff, which was definitely what I wanted to do, trying to revisit that high school dream of being the lesbian crack smoking whore in New York City (laughs) or Portland. Um, And what else was on the bucket list? I also did that in Spokane because I ended up there at one point in time. I wanted to get paid to act as well. So I did that in Portland and in Spokane. I wanted to write a book. So I wrote two. Um, and I wanted to write enough songs for an album. And so I did that. And I wanted to be a barista because <laughs> coffee was also forbidden to us when I was growing up in Saturday Jesus Land. And so I did that. And I wanted to work at a bookstore because Powell's Books was my refuge when I was a child. And I'd get money from getting poked with needles and then I'd go spend it at Powell's on books. And so I wanted to work at a bookstore and I did Did you work that. at Powell's? No, I worked at Auntie's Bookstore in Spokane, which is the Spokane version of Powell's. So, so what, there's a lot of Spokane. You moved up there? I did, yeah. I, I worked at the Portland Spirit for a while and then I got fired because they didn't think that I cared enough about the job. I was like, I care about the people and I care about the singing. Um, they surprised me. I didn't know I was going to get fired, but they fired me. And so I, I was sad and depressed and I rebounded by falling in love with a Renaissance sword fighter who lived in Coeur d'Alene. <laughs> You're just saying words now. Nope. It's all true. It is all true. If I can make that much stuff up on the fly, I should probably be famous. <laughs> Laura Lenny, watch out. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So so I was in Coeur d'Alene and uh, 
dating this Renaissance sword fighter. Oh, and this is like a like a Gettysburg um, Civil War reenactment type thing. Or no, what? no, a couple hundred years previous. So, <laughs> so think Shakespeare, right? So okay. we're talking like fancy hilts and doublets and. Yeah, talking in fake British accents, which I was... That's what you're into. Well, he was really cute. <laughs> and he was good with a sword. So what can I say? I mean, I was like 20, 24, okay. 25. Well. So there you are. So I ended up in Spokane because it's impossible to make a living in Coeur d'Alene unless you work for Coldwater Creek, which I tried and it sucked. And so I moved to Spokane. And that's where all of the bookstore working and... The acting and getting paid for it started happening, which people may not know that Spokane was almost the Los Angeles that we know today. Really close. It was. There are still old— For real? Yes. I was joking. I was not. There are old lots still, movie lots for silent films in Spokane by Spokane Falls Community College. Because they set things up in like the 30s and 40s? It was like a little before that, like the teens, 20s. Why? Why? Because it's the Inland Empire, baby. And it has great weather except for wintertime. So it was a pretty stable environment. But the reason they ended up going to L.A., or so I was told, was because of the snowy, snowy winters. Yes. Yeah. Well, L.A. is pretty awesome. That way. In terms of weather. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So... Needless to say, Spokane, I ended up living there for three years, working in the film industry um, and acting and working at the bookstore and being a barista and writing the book of poetry and writing the songs and having my brushes with the law and, you know, like all of that stuff. You went to jail? Yeah, I I spent a night in jail. What'd you do? For sure. I'm telling you this now because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, I may run for public office at some point in time, so it's just better to get all the skeletons out of the (laughs) closet now. Um, So I shoplifted because I was super poor. and Everybody does that. Right? But I, I really did that. Like, there was n- no candy bar. It was like six area rugs kind of thing. Rugs? And, How do you steal rugs? Well, I mean, I figured <laughs> I figured because of my background in behavioral science and like knowing all this stuff about profiling— and how people tend to have these biases towards certain groups of people that as this super milk toast white faced lady, it would be very unlikely that people would suspect me of doing anything super naughty. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I will just test that and I will see if that is true. Because, of course, as you can imagine, like I've been raised with the Ten Commandments, like this very strict moral ethical code. And I really wanted and needed to know, like, do I actually believe this ass or is this just more rules. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, which ones can I break and live with myself? Um, I can steal something. That that one I think I can break and be okay. A rug is large and hard to hide. Why don't you steal like a purse or something? Well, because I wanted to see just how strong that societal bias is in my favor, or not in my favor for being able to just get away with it. So this is like in the time before Donald Trump is saying I could murder someone on Park Avenue and nobody would do anything. Like yeah. that's 
not to compare myself to Donald Trump. And at the same time, like he recognized a very true thing that as a white man with power, with some fame, there's really very little he couldn't get away with. Mm-hmm. And I was sniffing around that at that time, right? Like I had that sort of unformed thought in my head that I'm not, I don't look like someone that's going to do something really major, like pull off a six rug heist from, <laughs> from a Spokane. It's never been done before. <laughs> well, I'm sure it has, but to good, good little Saturday Jesus me, I was like, this is, this is big time, baby. And so um, I just loaded them up on the cart. I walked in and I was like, I will buy some things. And then I'll have a receipt, right? I'm coming in hot off a theater audition, mind you. I just auditioned to be in a Shakespeare play, so I was all dolled up. I mean, I just look cute and, like, super respectable and stuff. So I was like, well, if I have a receipt for, like, a $5 item that I bought, then if I have all of this big stuff that you can't fit in a bag, they're just going to think I paid for it, right? Mm -hmm. Let's see if that holds true. And like I said, I was also super poor and pretty desperate. And my apartment was really cold because my hot Renaissance sword fighting boyfriend also was super into pot. So he did not have a ton of motivation at that time to go out and make money. So I was like doing all the things. I was hustling, yeah. hustling, hustling. So I just loaded him up on the bottom of the cart and and I walked out of the store. Which store was this? Um, it's like a Walmart or something? Kind of. I'm not going to say You're which one say it, it was. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I I walked out and I was like, Jamie, don't do this. Like, you need to get caught. You need to get caught doing this. So, like, you remember that you actually do have some boundaries and these rules exist for a very good reason and you agree with them. But I did not listen to my intuition. And so I made it out to the parking lot. And then I heard this voice say, <clears throat> excuse me, ma'am, I think you have some items that you didn't pay for. And I was like, oh, phew. I mean, I could have, theoretically, I suppose, just gotten into my car and driven away because I don't think they can actually chase you. They're not supposed to. Right. They're supposed to let you go once you've passed the threshold. Yes. That was my thought, too. But I I needed a moment of just, like, bringing me back to the earth. So you wanted to get caught. I kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so... She did her job well, and she it was, was a woman. Yeah, loss prevention lady. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was just like, okay. If it would have been a dude, he would have never caught you. No. He'd be like, she's not. Yeah. That, that, that nice young woman yes. is not stealing rugs. No. But the, the lady's like, oh, she's she's them. totally stealing <laughs> the rugs. She, she is one hundred percent stealing the rugs. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there I am in the back office and whatever, and. And they, like, add everything up, and they're like, you're over the line. It's it's a felony now. Oh, no. And it was, like, five bucks or something ridiculous, right, like that, where I could have just gone home, and it would have been a misdemeanor, could have paid my fine, whatever. But nope, suddenly the cops are being called, and I'm all cute in handcuffs, and the cops, like, um, I don't know why we're doing this. You're way too cute to be in. Like, what? Well, yeah, and then your boyfriend's at home, and he can't eat anything. I know. He's just really high He's and so, so high hungry. And, hungry. <laughs> and you're just like in jail. What are you doing? Yeah, what is happening? I'm being very neglectful. <laughs> Bad Jamie. And so, yeah, like I'm just chatting him up in the back of the car. I'm like, so, you know, what's your story? How'd you become a cop? What's going on? <laughs> and he's like, um, six area rugs? 
I'm like, well, I mean, my apartment's cold. It's winter time. I don't know. Um, so they they put me through the whole thing, right? Like they they fingerprint me. They put me in the prison scrubs. They do my mug shots. And I have one phone call. And I'm in a show. And it is like dress rehearsal that oh, night. No. So what do I do with my one phone call? I call my stage manager. I'm like, I can't come to rehearsal tonight because I'm in jail. <laughs> do you have $500? But... <laughs> I think they're going to let me out tomorrow, so it should be okay for opening night. Can you call my boyfriend? She's like, yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, and so there I am in jail, and I'm in a cell, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, well, this is so interesting. I mean, there's the toilet, and there's the bunk. And there's a little window with bars on it, and everything is concrete. And, uh, huh, well, I guess I can do some push-ups, you know? And it's just, again, completely surreal. So I'm like, I guess I'll fall asleep. I don't actually know. No one's telling me anything other than calling me Rug Doctor now, like all of the staff. Are <laughs> you, already, like, you already had I a had nickname? A, I had a jail nickname. They're <laughs> like, there goes the Rug Doctor. I'm like, okay. Um so they bring in a, a roommate that night who's just higher than anything. She just passes out. That's great. But there's this gal in another cell that's singing Bye Bye Miss American Pie over and over and over oh, again. No. And just the Bye Bye Miss American Pie over and over and over again into the toilet because it broadcasts it throughout the entire place. So no one sleeps at all. Get the food in the morning. They take us in. Like, we go on this little march through hallways, and we get to this uh, holding cell, cell for arraignment. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like, what what happens? Do I get to go home then? What? And everyone starts telling their story of why they're in there, right? And, and it's all drug-related, you know? Like, they've got the meth habit or they've got the coke habit or whatever, and they've stolen a car. They've uh, And they're sharing their secrets for how to get through the sensors in the store. Like, just line your bag with tinfoil, and then the radio sensors don't actually ping off of the little tags they put. Does that work? On the, I mean, I haven't tried it. <laughs> I can only assume no because they're there talking. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but but maybe. And so I'm I'm listening to them and I'm thinking I got to get out of here because if I end up staying here for any length of time, I'm going to come out a really good criminal or a bad criminal because I'm like I don't do drugs, I don't drink, you know. I'm going to remember all this and I'm going to oh, this is bad. And so long story longer, they end up letting me out on my own recognizance because I had no prior record and because blah blah blah. And so I, I did a remediation program, and it came off my record after paying fines and doing community service and, you know, all of this other stuff. So, you know, that's my jail story. And wow. The, fe the felonies are bad. I know someone, and I can't say who it is because it would be very obvious, but she stole a bunch of purses uh -huh. from, I don't know, Louis Vuitton or something, something yeah. like reputable, yeah. expensive place. And same thing happened to yeah. her. It crossed that threshold. Yes. She got arrested. She had a felony on a record for yeah. 10 years. Oof. Every time she applied for a job, she Oof. had to say she had a, she was a felon. Yeah. And when you become when you cross that threshold, like that can that can ruin a ton of stuff for you. It's a big deal. I mean you can't vote. Yeah. You can't 
Yeah, you know, right? I, and I was like, I, I think I still want to go to law school. That was another thing on my bucket list, right? Like I'd taken the LSAT and everything and was like, wow, that was not in the plan. Okay. And so I had gone and I hired an attorney and he, he said, we can get it off your record, you know, because all of the things that had made me think it was probably an okay idea for me to try stealing six area rugs, like you're white, you're educated, you have no prior record, you're an attractive female, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and so he got it off. And and that was when, so 25, I'm 20, 24, 25. Um, that was when I was like, wow, the justice system is really effed up. If I were a black woman, if I were like, an 18-year-old black man, mm -hmm. this would not be my story. Yeah. No yeah. way. Yeah. I'd be so screwed, mm -hmm. you know? And so I <clears throat> never, never stole anything again. Um, and I also got really interested in racial justice and in looking at some of these systems of oppression, <laughs> you know? That, Based on that one event? Yeah, and, yeah. And just my native curiosity and uh -huh. background in behavioral science and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always had a really keen sense of justice. Like, is this fair? Is this not fair? Like, if it's not fair, I'm going to fight it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kicked it into high gear, though, in terms of wanting to understand some of these bigger systems that we find ourselves embedded in, in Western civilization, and particularly the United States. Yeah, I feel like... I asked what the next thing was, and it could go any direction. Yeah. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Did I also mention that I was a time walker? What does that mean? No, that's a lie. I just said that because I thought it was funny. <laughs> I don't even know what it is, but it sounds cool. I want to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, I, we could talk about quantum physics a little bit if you want to, but that, that feels like both of our brains might melt a little bit. <laughs> well, I don't know you at all, but it seems like... The overarching, like, general consensus of your life is that you're just good at interacting with people and understanding things. Mm. Is that mm. accurate? Well, that's very flattering. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you say that about people because I am the total black sheep of my family. My family is a hot mess. Like, Yeah, so. but that doesn't mean you can't. <laughs> understand other humans well i think it's probably because of that that yeah. i understand other humans yeah. you know and circling back to that idea of having had some really profound initiations over the course of my life you know like the cancer and the cult and nervous breakdowns and you know so many other things um <clears throat> i've really been confronted with what are the common denominators you know that we share as humans mm -hmm. on this planet mm -hmm. and not just humans, but any life system that's happening on this planet. So that is the most important skill. Is that? In my opinion, every human is different and no one understands what it's like to be you. And if you're able to connect with people, you can sell them you can sell, a, what is it? You can sell a, <laughs> a woman with white gloves, a ketchup popsicle. Ooh. You can sell Amway. You can make somebody confident. You can't, like, if you're able to talk to a person, and that's where it gets sinister, like you could manipulate people, mm. or you could just be genuine and understand things. And that is like, I mean, I'm sure you've met people that just suck at interacting. Oh, yes. And those... 
those are difficult humans that are not going to be successful. <laughs> Unless they're born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. I mean, just to just to live 80 years of your life, if you don't know how to interact with people, it's going to suck. <laughs> well you said. Gotta, you got to figure well that said. out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I remember um, one of these moments of clarity in my life, aside from I want to join the circus, you know, and be, be an actress and whatnot, was when I was about 16 or 17, waking up and, and thinking, you know, I really just want to help people remember who they are. I want them to remember, help them remember how magical they really are. And if I can do that, then I will be living my life purpose. Based on what? Past lives? No. <clears throat> no, based on like the truth of their inner themness. Because I really do feel and, and apparently have since I was very young that we each come in here with special things about us, with stuff that we need to learn or that we need to do, and that within that is a certain level of genius for each one of us, if we are truly able to hook into that mm -hmm. and nourish that and discipline ourselves to bring that to fruition, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a past life thing. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, which <laughs> I could tell you some past life stories, baby. But um, but this life is the one that I'm aware of living right now. So mm -hmm. it's really about helping people unlock their own potential in this life. So is that what you do professionally? Kind of. <laughs> you want to see my resume? <laughs> I want you to tell me your resume. <laughs> yeah, my resume, I feel like when I, I show it to people, um, I've got different resumes for <laughs> for everyone. No, it's true. When you, when you try to get a job at the rug store, you don't tell them about that event. I, well, I do because I'm like, I know the difference between shitty rugs and quality <laughs> rugs. I have six of them. Um, uh, no, I <laughs> right now, the current incarnation of Jamie is I'm doing political communications consulting. So I am actually working with candidates running for office around the area and doing a lot of their communications for them okay. strategically. But as you kind of half jokingly said, you want to potentially be in that position yourself. Yeah, potentially at some point in time. Um, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Cause it seems like it'd be way better to actually do it for yourself than to do it for someone else. Yeah, but I like to know how things work from the inside out because that's how change really happens, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about personally or we're talking about organizationally. Yeah, but it's way easier to change a person or yourself than it is to like pass legislation through Congress and enact a law. That shit's hard. It's laborious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so bureaucratic. And uh, I, I care deeply about community and about family. Again, probably because mine was so weird growing mm -hmm. up, you know. And so when I came back to Portland, because I call myself a salmon, I've lived all over the world and I've traveled and I've done a million things. And I always end up swimming back to my headwaters and being like, I'll breed here. Um, <laughs> it's essentially what I did. I came back to have my son, Espen, who's eight years old now and imported my Danish husband with me. And... Um, so after having him and doing the stay-at-home mom thing for a while, which really I equate to being taken over by the Saturday Jesus Borg 
programming that was like, hey, when you have the baby, this is what you do. You stay at home and you raise the baby and you don't work and you sideline your career and you forget who you are. And, you know, so that, that kind of happened for a while. And then I was like, okay, I need to get back into it and, and engage with my community. So I went and I did a master's degree at Portland State, finished the degree, you know, in educational leadership and policy and sustainability education. So I was like, I love the planet. I love communities. I want to make things better. And so through that program, I started looking around for community leaders and I got hooked up with a congressional campaign and ran communications for that in 2020, um, right before the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. So my, my time in politics is relatively short, but I dived in or dove in and I started really looking at how does legislation move from idea to law, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and where is the most advantageous place to apply pressure to the system to be able to affect change that actually impacts people's daily lives, Mm -hmm. right? And the short story is, is local government. I mean, really, because knowing how uh, an idea moves into policy and then into legislation is great, but... So your goal would be to be on the board of, of of the city of Portland versus running for president. Yeah, I don't really want to learn. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be the president of the United States. Yeah. I like maybe a county commissioner, you okay. know, or um, a metro commissioner, or being the mayor of a town like Milwaukee, where I currently reside. Like those those are areas where I could see myself being happy because I get to hang out with the people that I actually live okay but it's it's pertinent to a community in oregon like Um, you wouldn't do it in kansas not like topeka or something no i wouldn't no because i feel like in order to really make choices and build consensus and community effectively you have to know the place Mm -hmm. right and it takes time to know a place, just like it takes time to know a person. And uh, and I've been here enough years now that I've seen this land, actually the land evolve over 43 years mm-hmm. um, and know the institutions and know the people and hopefully then can make a more informed decision. So what, what needs to change? What's happening right now in Milwaukee and Portland area that you that you could affect? Well, I mean, that I want to affect because I think passion has to also drive whatever you do when you get into a system like politics. And I don't have concrete aspirations at this time. I have a willingness to serve if that were to become something that was asked of me. It's not something that I'm going to ram my way into. But in terms of the issues, I mean, I would really love to see land be given back to the stewardship of indigenous people. That is something that is very near and dear to my heart. So you like casinos? So casinos are already on indigenous land. And that's, I know, okay. (laughs) I was like, don't don't you get my hackles up, Cody. Uh, (laughs) uh, Casinos have actually 
you know, interestingly done some really amazing things for the indigenous communities because they finally have something to show up at a bargaining cool. table with, right? Cool. But um, no, more specifically, like in Milwaukee, there is a place called Elk Rock Island, which you may or may not be familiar with. And it sits right out in the middle of the Willamette. And it was a really important site for indigenous people because it was where they would run elk off this cliff and then they would go and they would get them out of the water. And, you know, this was one of the ways that they hunted and provided for the people, which I learned on the Portland Spirit, by the way. And and so to me, it would make great sense because it's a park now to manage that, at, at the very least manage that with indigenous people because they, they know the land even better than the colonists that have arrived here, right? And climate change being a real thing and exploitation of natural resources and the land itself being a real thing that we are having to deal with. Um, being able to find solutions that are very place-based and that are very equitable and that are restorative and regenerative is where my mind and where my heart go when I think about engaging with the bureaucratic legislative governance of this area. Yeah, for sure. It's a weird it's a weird topic because I mean, we essentially stole land from the people that were here and I don't know what what the real answer is. You can't just give everything back, <laughs> but you also have to find like some sort of balance. Yeah. Um, but also, I don't know, like how do you claim land? Mm-hmm. How does anybody claim land ever? I don't understand when you think about it, like yeah. over the course of history, like how I own mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. I own a house. Mm-hmm. Why is that mine? Yeah. Why isn't it anybody's? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I in, feel- in a thousand years, maybe my great, 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 great grandson still owns that. That's so weird. It's wild. It's wild. No, agreed. And I mean, the United States version of colonization is, is settler colonization. And what it depends on is bodies. Mm-hmm. Just getting bodies on the ground, you know, and you really see that when you start looking at the history, history minor, by the way, the history of this land is the land rushes, you know, the land claim races that they would have in the Midwest, which you may have heard about, where they give you a flag and be like, run And wherever you find a green flag or whatever color it was, you know, if it's there, then you can put your flag down there. And that 150 acres is yours, free and clear. All you have to do is stay there and build a house. This is after Louisiana Purchase, yeah? Mm, Yeah, the 1850s. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, they that's why immigrants were so welcome in this country by the government, because they needed bodies to fill up the physical Mm -hmm. space, right? Like, we'll kill all of the indigenous people, and then we'll cover the land that they were on with these white bodies or, you Mm -hmm. know, yellow bodies or whatever the immigrant wave was. And and so it's really just like, (laughs) it just makes me feel bad. And when I say bad, what I actually mean is it's, it just feels so dirty and so nefarious and so um, so toddler-like, you know? Like, I'm going to push you over and I'm going to take your teddy bear and now it's my teddy bear because I'm standing and you're on the ground, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, it's really weird because there's a finite amount 
And I mean, what is it? 27% of the earth? I think the other, uh, what, 73% is water. So there's mm-hmm. there's only so much. Right. And every piece of it is owned by someone. Hmm. Wild. It just it doesn't make sense when you when you like break it down you like really start thinking about it you're like what yeah sometimes i'll just like go stand somewhere and i'll just like start getting weird in my brain and i'll like go back in time and i'll be like man there were just like bears hanging out here 100 years ago yeah. this was not a building this was not anybody's land uh this was just like a forest. Yeah. And now I'm standing here and I pay $250 a month to sit in this place and talk to you in microphones. Like, it's so weird. It's totally weird. That feels like time walking mm. in a way. Okay, just well, what described. is time walking? Yeah. So it literally is something that I just made up, but I was trying to loop it back around because you said that. And um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I feel like it's a real thing because you keep saying it. Well, it is a real thing. And here's the deal. I mean, time is on a spectrum, right? I mean, we've had those experiences where you're talking with someone and you look down and you're like, wow, six hours just went by. How mm-hmm. did that happen? Or you're sitting in math class and you're like, and it's been three minutes. Oh, my God, my brain is melting. Mm-hmm. Right? So time is relative, And I feel like whether that is because of our perception of it or because there's some actual mechanism that's happening that's slowing it down for our discussion doesn't really matter. But the point that I think is interesting about time walking is being able to um, to have an awareness of different moments in a place, right, that have happened, like you were just describing, standing here or sitting here in this space and being able to see or imagine, like, these different eventualities or these different possibilities or these different realities that have existed and do exist simultaneously, right? But it's like, we're just aware of this one right now. Mm -hmm. But is it possible for us to... Well, yeah, there's the theory, too, that that objects have memory. Mm-hmm. So, for example, maybe a, a really long time ago, there was some sort of Native American battle in this area mm-hmm. and people were killed in this exact spot. Mm-hmm. Then 100, 200 years go by and this building gets built. And now we're here. And we're sitting at this table that was purchased from Ikea. Yeah. Who knows where they sourced this wood, but this tree could have been in Germany yeah. in uh, 1944 during the yeah. World War. I mean, there could have been memories of people getting shot in this wood and now you and I are sitting here we're ingesting or forcing memory into this with this conversation maybe this gets thrown in a landfill in 50 years Uh and then some futuristic space boy like builds a cup out of it and drinks like the, the possibilities are endless endless and it's so nuts because if that is a thing that memories get in forced into to elements like you have no idea what you're ever really dealing with let's take a moment <laughs> it's so crazy <laughs> we start thinking about it to the table well so in another life but also this one i'm a yoga teacher and mm-hmm. teach yoga philosophy to 
aspiring yoga teachers. So within the cosmology of yoga, it's interesting because they talk about this thing called the precipitation of matter. And if you think about it like how a cloud and rain and the life cycle of water mm-hmm. happens, yeah. it's similar with material reality. And so you start with like a thought, and maybe that's just the evaporated water coming up off of the sea, right? And then that thought like, I'm going to have to pay my rent at the end of the month, (laughs) starts pulling these other little droplets of thoughts and feelings like, oh, shit, am I going to have enough money? You know, like you've got a little anxiety or you've got a little excitement because it's near the end of your lease and you get to go somewhere else, you know. And so all of these little pieces are coming together around that thought and forming that cloud, right? And then it comes to the end of the month and all of a sudden you're like handing the check over and it's raining. Like that reality has just transformed from this thought into this actual thing that Mm -hmm. your landlord can do something with, (laughs) right? And so I feel like that's where the quantum physics principles come in and just the idea that matter is neither created nor destroyed. It's just transformed energy. Well, yeah, and it's all interconnected too. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, the, The thing that makes me cry becomes sweat that goes into my shirt that gets washed in the washer and then it evaporates and goes up into a cloud and then it rains on somebody in Romania yeah, and falls into their bathtub or whatever. Like, yeah, it's all... It's all connected. It's all connected. It's all connected. I think there's a lot of stuff we don't understand that... Um, I don't know if we ever will, but it's got to it's gotta mean something more. Are you sniffing around there being a higher power or a grand purpose and design? I don't know if I think, are you talking about like, um, uh, like destiny or I can't think of the word right now. Fate. Fate. I was going to say faith. I was like, it's not the right word. (laughs) But they're so close. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) No, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I like to entertain ideas. I don't really subscribe to anything. I just like to think about stuff. Yeah. How do you feel about it? About fate? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think there are things you are responsible for deciding, but I also like, I don't like to plan for anything. No? No. Why? Because I like the spontaneity of it. Some people like to figure out where they're going to go on vacation in a year and they think about the the swimming suit they're going to take and how it's going to fit in their suitcase and what restaurant they're going to go to and how much money I need and and what the rental car is going to be and what color, like blah, 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 blah. I don't like to, I don't like to do any of that. Hmm. I like to say... I'm probably going to go to Europe and then I'll figure it out. Yeah. And I just let things happen because I think it's more exciting that way because I kind of feel like it's more like the universe is figuring it out for me, I guess. Mm, Jesus take the wheel. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I love her. (laughs) Carrie Underwood, right? Nice one. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I think that scares a lot of people. And maybe it's because I'm lazy. Hmm. Maybe I just don't want to spend the time on it. I'd rather think about other stuff. What would you rather think about? I just, um, I don't know. I don't like, I don't like to to figure things out in advance. I'd rather just see what happens. Hmm. How has that worked out for you so far? I don't know. I'm like a dude who lives in a place in time. Uh huh. <laughs> Is that exciting? It's Interesting? Cool. Curious? It's cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I think it's working out okay. <laughs> Sometimes it sucks. <laughs> Not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still alive. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, all those decisions have gotten me here. Indeed. So that's cool. It's cool. It also feels like you might have a fairly high risk tolerance profile. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> has that always been the case? Probably since I was a teenager. Well, was it the moans that kicked in and just made you say, fuck it? Or like, what happened? It's probably a lot of what we talked about earlier, just not liking rules. Mm. I, I don't appreciate people telling me what to do. Did anyone ever try? Oh, people try all the time. What was the first memory that you have of someone trying to make you follow a rule? Mm, I mean, if you don't, if you don't include school, probably my parents. Do you remember the rule? It was probably like, don't drink or don't smoke or don't, don't wear. I do remember once when I was riding the school bus to school, I was in like elementary school and my mom told me I couldn't wear shorts because it was winter. Ah, mm. And so I wore shorts and then I had sweatpants over the top. And when I got on the school bus, <laughs> I took the sweatpants off. <laughs> so sneaky. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you feel? You remember? Feeling awesome. Like, yeah. Probably cold. Yeah, well, but worth it, right? <laughs> worth it. Whatever, mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's like, um, I don't know. It's specific to me. It's probably specific to a lot of people, but there are certain, I guess there's a certain part of me that like, even if you told me to do something I wanted to do, I'd be like, fuck you, I'm going to do the other thing. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if everybody or lots of people feel like that, why is it weird? I don't know. Why Why is there a desire to do the thing you're not supposed to do? I feel like we are curious monkeys. Like that is part of our DNA is to try stuff, right? I mean, we have to see. We have to know for ourselves. And I feel like that's where religion falls down or any other super bureaucratized system falls down is because it doesn't take into account that need to test the boundaries, right? It just wants you to show up and do the same thing over and over and over and over again. And boredom is like a powerful motivator. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, so is fear. It, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I feel like, where a lot of these systems thrive or have gotten their teeth or their roots. But it's like, at the end of the day, um, when you start rubbing up against what they allow you to do or don't allow you to do, there's going to be a point where those systems break. So 
I, I think it's human nature on many levels just to need to push past the known into the unknown. Yeah, I mean, that's where most progress comes from, right? Yeah, like if everybody was happy to just follow the rules because somebody said so, like, how do you know they're right? How do you know? Especially when you have all of the random things that happen in life happen to mm -hmm. you. Where it's like, well, if the rule was true, then uh, me being a good person, I wouldn't get cancer at eight years old. Like, I would yeah. actually, right? So it's like life is almost set up on some level to disprove the absolutism of any rule, right? Do you remember being in, in chemistry class or biology in high school and then being like, this is always the rule except in case B, C, or D. So remember this is always the thing, but also. Except. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think the question that keeps me up at night is like, how do I reconcile the fact that some rules are necessary and actually are helpful so that we can get things done? Because if I didn't wear clothes in the morning, you know, for example, it would be very difficult for me to make enough money to be able to do the thing that I want to you do. You just need a different job. <laughs> I, I mean, clearly. Okay. Good point. Good point. But uh, <laughs> but we do we do have to test things. I feel like that's always been the case because life just demands that I ask the question even if I would much rather stay in bed and just be cozy within the rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to question what is considered real or what is considered fact. Mm. And that's that's kind of the bummer about what's happening now is that there's just a lot of censoring of things that are outside yeah. normal thought, which I don't know why people are so scared of the unknown. Oh, my gosh. I feel like we collectively have a global brain injury that everybody is walking around with just being in chronic fight or flight. Yeah. So making a higher, more nuanced argument or decision is sort of beyond the capacity of 99% of the people on this planet because how can you when you're stuck in chronic fight or flight? Like mm -hmm. the way our society is set up, just everything happening so fast all the time and it's really loud and, you know, like you don't have a chance to recover from trauma or be in community and have your rituals and your people around you that can help make sense of all the chaos. I mean, there's just never a moment to breathe and regenerate. So people are sort of intentionally, I feel like, by the powers that be, put into these continual loops of fear. To your earlier point, you know, it is a really strong motivator and it makes us all dumber. Mm -hmm. That's also the crazy thing, though, is that we're so much smarter than we ever have been. Like if you took the average eight-year-old mm -hmm. back a hundred years They'd be smarter than most adults. We know so much more now, but we also have to fight so much more misinformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just talking about this with a girlfriend before I came here, actually, because her eight-year-old was like, so we don't believe Fox News, right? Because they're just liars. And she, she's having to explain, like, some of the stuff is not true, but some of the stuff is true. And how do you get that GPS system of whack-a-mole mm -hmm. for the misinformation versus the truth into your eight-year-old's 
awareness and your own awareness because we're like building the plane as we fly it really right like your your generation and my generation Mm -hmm. we have the digital adulthood and the analog childhood so we remember when you had to actually go get an encyclopedia (laughs) and look up the thing (laughs) right um and there's there's beauty in that but um how do we parse how do we parse the sheep from the goats to use an ancient religious metaphor (laughs) And I feel like it comes back to personal sovereignty. Like we have to remember our way back to our true nature so that we can heal that fractured psyche and brain that is in chronic fight or flight and bring it back to a rest and digest status. It needs to be more simple. It doesn't have to be this complicated. Really, all you got to do is eat healthy food, mm-hmm. exercise, mm-hmm. love your kids, yeah. teach them not to be assholes. Well, it's up for debate. <laughs> what else? <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be that difficult. There's just so many distractions and people get sidelined with the stuff that doesn't matter. And I don't know. Okay, so you can have like three operating principles in your life that guide this simple but wonderful, meaningful life, what are they for you? Be kind or, or treat people with respect, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how I would mm. encapsulate that. But then um, educate yourself. Mm. Learn from as many sources as you can. Don't just follow Fox News or don't just follow CNN or don't just follow the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Learn as much as you can and then I don't know. The other one has to have something to do with your intake. Practice moderation. I don't Mm. know. Mm -hmm. Even moderation and moderation. Which is hard for me because I love to do things in excess. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you're probably excess like is awesome. a Scorpio or a Pisces, Pisces. or something. Yeah. Oh boy, that's a rough road to hoe. Tell me about it. Yeah, I salute you. <laughs> yep, lots of feels, huh? <laughs> so in my other life, one of the other lives, I became a hand analyst because I was obsessed with finding life purpose. Right? Like, what am I really here to do? As he kind of poked at earlier, like. <laughs> Who are you? And so I learned how to do this um, system of analysis whereby you look at the fingerprints on the hand and it's like your personal destiny Hmm. or your fate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's – I still use it to this day. I really think it should be a hiring practice for anybody that's bringing people on board because – while we do share these themes of needing to explore and be curious and follow rules and, you know, do all of that stuff, like there are definitely temperaments and there are things about us as individuals that are very are very true and very unique to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you saying that you like to take risks and that you're a Pisces and everything, I'm like, ah, I should look at your hands and give Andrea a heads up. <laughs> she knows. She knows, yeah. <laughs> are there specific things you can learn from people's fingerprints? Because aren't fingerprints unique? They or are. Doesn't everybody have a completely different fingerprint? 
Well, yes, every fingerprint is unique and the fingerprints are formed three months into the womb and they never change. So the fingerprints you have when you were born are the ones that you will die with as well. So how can you read something that's unique to one person? Yeah. How can you lump it together with other things? Yeah. So I like to think about it as another form of archetyping. So with each finger, there are different characteristics or qualities that go. And this system is based on the geography of palmistry. So just just the geography, like when we're talking about the, the first finger, for example, that's your, um, your Jupiter finger. And then you've got your Saturn and your Apollo and your Mercury all the way down to the pinky. And then you've got... Each one of those, depending on whether it's the right or the left hand, that is a different a different reflection of an archetype, okay. right? So different combinations, right? Like we've got 10 different archetypes that we're working with. Um, and from that, we get different combinations depending on what your fingerprint is. So it's not so dialed in like a DNA test necessarily, where you're going to have your own special words that nobody else has, Mm -hmm. but you're going to have a combination of those archetypes and those schools and those lessons that are unique to you. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, Richard Unger, he studied just thousands and thousands of different sets of hands and looked at forensics and medical science and psychology and probably just straight up channeled like the stitching together of everything because I don't know how you actually figure that out. You're like, oh, I'm just going to borrow a little bit from uh, medicine and Mm -hmm. a little bit of that dash of this and figure this out. But it is uncannily accurate. It is um, better than any astrology reading I've ever had because it's kind of like the trifecta of your soul's purpose here in this life. So, yeah. That's a pretty cool statement. You like that? (laughs) (laughs) Just came up with it. (laughs) I just made it up. (laughs) I promise only to use my powers for good. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good spot. That was really awesome. Thank you very much. Absolutely. You're so welcome. Cool. Thanks for having me.